Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, it's Mike Gunan. I am talking to you from the South Korean countryside in the southwestern corner of the country in a little town called Nampyong. I just saw a crane uh, fly across the horizon of mountains here, uh, most of which are beautifully visible, but some of which are blocked by some incongruous high-rises that uh, just seem to keep getting built out here. But it's a beautiful scene. Uh, your podcast has been a huge part of my life, uh, traveling all over the world, in the Netherlands, in the Czech Republic, and Australia, New Zealand, and now in, in Korea. And I hope that you uh, continue making episodes for years to come. Hey, Chris, this is Niketa. I'm currently driving on Highway 518 in northern New Mexico from Las Vegas towards Mora, which continues on up to Taos. I was inspired to record because I heard you guys say you were coming up this way. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's beautiful country. And I just wanted to say thanks so much for what you do. I've been an avid reader, listener for I think it's been about four years now. I love to use uh, turning your podcast on to people. It's kind of my litmus test for if uh, I'm going to like you or not. <laughs> I find such inspiration from your intelligence and humor, the guests, the varied guests that you have. It's just such a great thing. I'm so inspired by your life, and uh, it inspires me to live mine more fully. And uh, just wanted to say thanks. Dr. Christopher Ryan, this is Brendan calling from Toronto, Canada. I just want to say it is a pleasure to listen to your podcast and your appearances on other people's podcasts. I truly, really enjoy your opinions and your perspective on life, and uh, I thought I'd brighten everybody's day by doing a mediocre impression of Jeff Goldblum. So, uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan, if uh, I may be so humble as to call you a uh, 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 doctor, uh, I just want to say don't ever stop doing your, your podcast because it's great and uh, I love your uh, presence, so don't ever stop permeating the atmosphere with Christopher Ryan because it's very warm and, uh, and welcoming. So, uh, I, that's all I have to say. Uh, uh, goodbye. Well, thank you very much for that uh, fantastically mediocre Jeff Goldblum impression. And uh, thanks to the other two people who sent in their voice clips as well from New Mexico and South Korea. Uh, I saw some some people were throwing some shade at this on Reddit, uh, sort of joking about how everybody who sends in these clips happens to be on the south slope of Mount Everest or about to toss themselves into a beautiful tropical river after eating their totally, um, you know, uh, hand-picked organic dinner from wild plants. Uh, lots of people just sending things, hey, I'm driving a truck across the fucking desert, you know, on my way to work, or I'm doing this or doing that. They're not all exotic. So if you're uh, just a regular person doing living a regular life but you listen to the podcast and you're having a good time don't be shy let us let us hear from you as well everybody's welcome and uh 
you know, it can't be exotic all the time. You got to be home sometime. You got to pay the rent and raise the kids and feed the dogs and all that shit. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that life isn't worth living if you're not, you know, your fucking RPMs aren't up in the red zone all the time. <clears throat> Hell no. I think quality of life involves an awful lot of just hanging out. So don't be shy about that. Uh, <laughs> interesting segue. I'm going to Bali next month. Uh, I'm going to go down to Bali. I've never been there. Uh, so I'm going to go check out the scene in Bali. Uh, Simon Rex might come down. Some other friends of mine may be there. So, uh, we're going to see what's going on down there. I'm kind of scouting out places where Casilda and I might have sort of a second home base for a while uh, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast she's very interested in moving away from a traditional psychiatry model um, conventional medical model into something much more holistic and comprehensive where she can work with people about <clears throat> you know all the different things that contribute to someone's health ranging from diet to sleep to movement um, uh, possibly with some sort of uh, traditional plant medicines involved uh, in one way or another, psychotherapy, um, all the things that she's so good at and has spent so much time studying and practicing. Um, so we're looking for a place where she can set up shop. And that may be Bali, maybe Costa Rica, maybe somewhere in the U.S. I'm not sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so that's why I'm going to Bali primarily to, to check that out and also just to get out of town. One of the things, you know, as those of you who listen to the podcast regularly know, my dad's been ill for a long time um, and uh, he died a couple months ago. So, you know, the bright side of that is that I'm free to take off and uh, do these long trips where I don't have to be able to get back home at a moment's notice. Um, so taking advantage of that. This episode is with Carly Chirino, who is a writer and a slut. She's a goddamn slut. She writes a column called, um, what is it called? Her website is Slut Ever, and her book is called Slut Ever. Her column uh, for Vogue is called Breathless, and that's an online sex and relationship column. Uh, she's host of a Viceland documentary series called Slut Ever, and as I said, that's her the name of her book and her blog. She's cool. I, I did a show with her in New York a couple of years ago for Vice. We were both on a panel. I forget what the name of the show was, but I think Carly and I talk about it in our conversation. And uh, it was really fun hanging with her. She is totally shameless and fascinated by sexuality. She's also smoking hot, so that sort of gives her access to do as much personal research as she wants to in that field. And um, so her life, she's young. She's in her 30s, I think, early 30s probably. Um, maybe late 20s even. I don't, I don't really know. Everybody's a goddamn baby to me. Everybody like under 45 may as well be in diapers as far as I'm concerned. But she's uh, super cool, super smart, sexy, curious, funny, uninhibited. We had a really good time chatting. 
Um, so if you are offended by sexuality, squeamish about sexuality, if you're new to this podcast and you're just testing it out and you're hung up about anything at all involving sexuality, this is not the episode for you because, you know, she's free and easy. I'm free and easy. And when two free and easy people get together, there's nothing to hold us back. So I don't even remember all the things we talked about, but it was pretty much uh, no holds barred. So there you go. Uh, what's on my mind? I don't know. I was just thinking this morning how much I fucking hate the fact that every time you download an upgrade for any fucking program, including the one I'm using right now to record my voice, this is what actually happened. I opened this program to put together this episode and it was like, oh, download the latest update. Okay, fine. Download the latest update. And I have to go through the process. And the process includes the goddamn button where I have to click I agree twice. And then the thing comes down. I have to click it again for some text that they know full fucking well I'm not reading. Nobody reads it. It's written to make it impossible to read. It's full legalese bullshit jargon. And so in order to participate in the modern world, you need to lie. You absolutely need to lie. You need to click, I understand, I agree, when you don't understand and you don't agree. There's something deeply, deeply evil about that. And also the fucking buttons that say submit. I submit. I submit. Yes, I give up. I submit. How many times have you clicked a button that said, I submit? That gets under your fucking skin, man. And also the things you have to click the button that says, I'm not a robot. Well, fuck you. Who's on the other side of that? It's a goddamn robot. I have to prove I'm not a robot to a robot. Oh, man. By the way, credit where credit's due. Jake Johansson has that in his uh, stand-up routine. It's fucking great. He gets into this whole thing about the modern world. And and there's a line in there about clicking the I'm not a robot thing. And it is a robot that you're fucking talking to. Ah, oh, man. All right. <clears throat> what else have I been thinking about? I was talking to a friend of mine. She's 30. And we were talking about... It, it occurred to me that people... Young people, I have a lot of young people in, in my life who I'm quite close to, who I care deeply about. And there's something, there are a lot of things that are very beautiful about that, obviously. Um, but one thing, like, there's a wariness, I feel, uh, with young people. And I was trying to I was trying to articulate what that wariness involves and it occurred to me that part of being young is experiencing frequent deaths of the self. This might sound weird because you know you think that older people are closer to death and and they are we are in in the sense that the big death, right? We're closer to the big death probably, although one never knows because, you know, a 25-year-old can fall off a fucking horse and break their necks. But um, 
so we, we sort of assume that the older you are, the closer you are to death, the more you think about death, the more you, you are experiencing death because people your age are dying or people that you grew up looking up to who are 10 years older than you, they're dying or whatever, right? So in my case, it's like, oh, Prince is dead. What the fuck is that? Prince is younger than me. How can Prince be dead? It makes no sense. Um, but what occurred to me is that the reason I'm a little wary in developing deep connections with young people is that they themselves are dying frequently when you're 20 the person you are when you're between 20 and 25 you're a different person certainly between 15 and 20 you're a totally different person so it's kind of like snakes shedding their skin or something it's like Young people shed themselves and emerge as someone new and then emerge and then reemerge and then reemerge and reemerge. And all those old cells just get sloughed off and left behind like a fucking lizard skin. And you reach a certain age and that stops happening for better or worse. You become who you are. You become an adult. And then from that point on, you're just that same person, but with more experience, more knowledge, hopefully, maybe more wisdom if you're really lucky. But you're not fundamentally different. And I think that age is different for different people. You know, I think for me, it was probably... I mean, depending what part of life we're looking at, and like intellectually and philosophically, I would say it was probably 28. Sexually, in terms of understanding my sexuality and all that, I would say it was later, maybe 34, somewhere around there, maybe. And then from that point on, nothing really changed. It just deepened and, and you know got richer and more nuanced. But the basic structure stayed the same. Whereas before that, you know, 22, 23, 24, 27, uh, I was just changing, 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 different. There were some common, there were some universalities or some common threads, of course, that ran through those personalities and those people. But, but there were fundamental shifts that were happening along the way. And so it, it makes it kind of, Interesting as an older person who's been an adult, who's been, you know, in this consistent personality for a long time, it makes it interesting to become friends with someone who's much younger because they could change in such fundamental ways that your friendship with them becomes impossible or, or it, it, it requires so much adjustment that, you know, it's, it, it becomes sort of. Uh, you know, it disappears. And that sucks because another thing that happens as you get older is you feel, at least in my case and, and friends that I've spoken to about this, there's a feeling of like, I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste energy. I don't want to invest in friendships, relationships that just fucking evaporate. You know, when you're young, who cares? You got so much time, so much energy, and, and you're learning, you're trying new things and all that. As you get older, I think you want to focus your energies more. I definitely feel that. Like, definitely want to sort of not squander time and energy. 
which is not a uh, not a critique of young people. I'm just saying it's interesting how I'd never thought about this way in which youth is uh, defined by proximity to frequent deaths of the self. So that's my big fucking idea for the day, such as it is. All right, that's enough of me. I'm going to turn this over to Carly Sciortino and another me from a few weeks ago who hasn't died. Still me, just a little older. And uh, I'm going to play you a tune. What's it called here? Fun for me. Fun for me. Because it just it feels like when I think of Carly, this song sort of feels like it resonates with her shameless, sexy femininity. Uh, it's Portis Head and Moloko, M-O-L-O-K-O. And uh, yeah, I got it on the Chill Out album a long time ago, <laughs> back when there were things called albums. Yeah, so this is fun for me. And I hope this podcast is fun for you. Thanks so much for listening. And I will catch you next time.
Shortino. All right. Okay, good. It was, actually, it wasn't recording there. No. That's good because I was like, wait, is my stomach growl coming in the fucking thing? <laughs> well, now it is. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm here with Carly Shortino. 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 Yes. Spelled S C I O R T I N O. Okay. Also, S- Sicilian name. Sicilian. <laughs> ah, Sicilian. Uh,. <laughs> You are best known. You, you have shows on Vice. Mm-hmm. What's your show? Is it called Slut Ever? Or what's yes, Slut Ever. So Slut Ever is the name of my sort of long-standing website that's about sexuality, primarily female sexuality, but kind of all over the map. And then I do a documentary comedy show on Viceland that's called Slut Ever as well. Slut Ever as well. I mentioned that to a friend the other night and she was like, was it Slut Ever like whatever or is it like Slut Ever question mark? (laughs) I think it's more just like a play on the word whatever that I've been saying since high school and I just think it's a funny, irreverent, like, I don't know, attempting to be self-aware way of calling myself a slut but that I don't really care about it. (laughs) (laughs) So, And you have a book called Slut Ever that came out, what, a year and a half ago? Something like that? No, it came out in earlier this year. Oh. Um, oh. But you got an advanced copy sort of way before that. That explains it. VIP. VIP, yeah. Yeah. And the book is kind of about... And it um, came with a pair of your your used panties, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. Everyone got one. That's the VIP (laughs) (laughs) treatment. Yes, the (laughs) pre-sale. (laughs) <laughs> nice um yeah it, the book is about it's like part memoir part slut manifesto that i just like the term slut manifesto so. i know they, <laughs> they work well together yeah yeah exactly. i'm working on a an awards program with a friend right now called the motherfucker awards mm-hmm. which is being given to those corporations that have made mother earth scream the loudest in the last year mm-hmm. so they're the motherfuckers of the year and on the website is the motherfucker manifesto. Oh, really? And wait, like scream the loudest meaning. I was thinking like the come, like they're no, coming or no, they're, they're raping, angry. They're okay. raping Mother Earth. Yeah. So it's like a tongue in cheek uh, celebration of the destruction of Earth and the environment. Right. So we're we're awarding the year's standout motherfuckers. Shame award. Shame award, exactly. Yeah. So I love a good pun. You love a good pun? Yeah. What was the pun in there? Motherfucker, right? Oh. Is that not a pun? Do I not know what a pun is? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's a pun. It's definitely... A play on words. Yeah, it's a play on words. Um, And then I I was talking to my friend Duncan about this. Duncan's a stand-up comic. Oh, I love his... Duncan Trussell? Yeah. I love his podcast. He's great. He's such a funny person. He is. He is. Like, some people are funny because they work out their bits. Yeah. Duncan's funny because of the way his brain works. Like he's just yeah. spontaneously funny. He has the craziest voice, and this must <laughs> this might be like a weird thing to say, but like, yeah, I have like a crazy thing about voices. Like, so is this like a sharp turn in the conversation? Turn, baby. Okay, like turn. <laughs> um, it's a turn in a good direction, I would say. <laughs> um, one of the things I love in porn is like with the kind of porn that is 
you just see the woman, but there's a male disembodied voice that's sort of directorial or, mm, you know, telling the voice them what to of do. God. It kind of is the voice of God. And then a lot of times when I'm fantasizing, it's often sort of narrated by these voices that I've heard in porn series or that I've heard on podcasts. Um, yeah, because so often now you listen to so many podcasts that it's almost like someone's voice is their full identity in mm. your mind because you often don't even know what they look like. And so right. I've started like fantasizing about voices. It's so strange. Have you ever done that? <laughs> uh, interesting question. Um, I'll tell you one of two, actually, of my proudest moments in my sex life were first, the first woman I got off over the phone Oh, interesting. And second, the first woman I got off over the phone in Spanish. <laughs> and do you, that, do you speak Spanish? <laughs> ole! I just kept saying, ole! Uh, yeah, I speak Spanish, but the thing is, you know, when you're building that, kind of, you're, you're creating that mood and sort of helping her move deeper and deeper into it, the worst thing would be to make some silly, like, grammatical mistake, right? Totally right. break the the mood. <laughs> like, say the wrong word. You say the wrong word or conjugate a verb wrong or whatever. I mean, whatever it is, it'll, it's a high wire act, you know? Mm -hmm. And my Spanish at the time was not and still isn't, like, so sure-footed that I, like, no problem, baby. Yeah. You know, there's definitely a risk of me saying something goofy in there. <laughs> so when, when it actually happened, I was like, whoo! Thank God. Had that been a critique before? Like someone's like about to come and then you misconjugate and they start like angrily raging at you? Uh, no, but I had a girlfriend for a long time who was um, Spanish. Yeah. She, so we, but she spoke English really well. Right. And so we always spoke English and then we moved to the States together and when I was in graduate school and I started to lose my Spanish mm -hmm. and she was Spanish. So I was like, why don't we talk Spanish like one day a week? And you know, she's like, no, no, I, I know you in English. I know. You know, it's like, hey. I was like, what are you doing? It's your it's one of your native languages. It's not hard for you. Just talk Spanish with no, no, no. So one day we were fucking mm -hmm. and I started talking to her in Spanish and <laughs> she like kicked me out of the bed she <laughs> freaked out it was like she looked at me and suddenly i was you know harvey weinstein or something it was like ah, get the fuck away from me and I was like jesus like all i said was like you know turn over or something <laughs> yeah so it's yeah. about identity language is, well language is really deep right mm -hmm. it's really deep in your identity so i can understand you like i've had women tell me they masturbate to my voice on the podcast i had a woman who interesting i had a woman who sent me an email saying i get i get so horny when i listen to your podcast that i um after the last one i fucked my husband without a condom and i'm pregnant and it's gonna be your voice baby oh my god yeah. and this was like it's like award-winning this she's probably listening to this now i'm not gonna say her name but hello i still think about you and she sends me <laughs> you're welcome this is like four years four years ago and she sends me photos still of the, baby? of the baby here's your voice baby and the baby's like three now that is hysterical yeah. i love that yeah i do too i wonder if it's more a female thing then 
But sometimes seeing what the person looks like can can ruin it, actually, because for a while I actually attempted once to listen to the um, to masturbate to the the Headspace app guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's like one guy who narrates all the meditations on Headspace, the, like the famous meditation app. Yeah, I've never listened to it. And so it's I, one guy. It's one guy and his voice is so soothing and he's mm. kind of like ambiguously like, is he Australian? Like it's hard to tell. He has like this mm. weird accent and he you know like puts me to sleep and you know like leads me toward enlightenment and i was like oh maybe like his voice could make me come <laughs> and then i googled him and i was like oh no uh, i can't he's a attra- he's an attractive person he's just not my type yeah yeah so it, was, it was a bust but oh, you got a joe rogan hoodie recently i know nice. my boyfriend got that printed for me oh yeah a special of a hoodie with wow. jorgen's face on it for my birthday which i thought was like truly like it was i was like i feel like truly understood as a person like this yeah. is the best gift so you uh, what, what is it about joe that you're into i just think that um well i know that you're good friends with him and that's what you like about that him. is what i like yeah. about that's his band. best quality really <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> that's what everyone says yeah I feel like it's sort of maybe not what you would imagine that I would like just being sort of it's it's a very like broy, right? So it's um I don't know, maybe you'd be surprised that I was into it, but I just like how real talk he is and I love how his conversations sort of cross over the line and he has conversations with people who he disagrees with largely mm. about things or people who are conservative or um I just like hearing people who I don't necessarily agree with to see if there's like bits of what of their, you know, personal ideologies that I can relate to. Mm. Because I think I've realized recently, like probably a lot of people are coming to this realization that you're kind of like indoctrinated into this liberal democratic way of thinking. Right. And then I think actually if you can be less dogmatic and sort of like piece together your own beliefs based on like the beliefs of like both the left and the right that you can be a more well-rounded empathetic person and i think yeah through listening to his podcast i do feel like um i've been better able to kind of generate my own ideas from listening to all these people with hugely diverse beliefs you know yeah yeah i agree i find that attractive about him too it's i mean that's one of the things i respect most about him that he's he's essentially fearless mm-hmm. you know um not just in a physical sense but in an intellectual sense He's very vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, like he has been with me. I, I think one of our first conversations, we talked about, you know, how his, uh, I don't know, his, his sort, sort of um, focus on martial arts and physical fitness and all that stuff was because he got beat up as a kid and had abusive stepfathers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it's a response to a sense of vulnerability or inadequacy or something. And he's like totally like willing to lay that out on the table you know or mm-hmm. and he's like it's interesting because he's like the ultimate alpha bro mm-hmm. and yet he's so much more nuanced and multifaceted you know than his tribe a lot of the members of his tribe it's always totally. interesting like i so last time i was on a show we talked about how um like when I go on a show, it's funny because I can look at the YouTube comments after 
and you know like maybe i don't know a, a lot of them are like yeah chris ryan's cool i did chris ryan and then someone will be like beta cuck loser and it's like oh yeah i'm a cuck guys sure yeah yeah i mean i know it's such a like basic assumption but it's like they're jealous because you're basically like i feel sexually free and they're like yeah. damn it well, and also I'm hanging with Joe, which is like, True. you know, you got no right. You know, you haven't, you don't have a shaved head and tats, know. you know? <laughs> it's true. I love your conversations on there though. But, and also it's like something that he has that you have is just, you are your own boss. So you're beholden right. to no one. So you can just say whatever you want, right. which is becoming, I guess, more and more feasible because of the internet but that's such a an amazing thing yeah it is it is i never take that for granted that's like you know this this uh, this having a talk show which is essentially what this is where we can talk as long as we want about whatever we want with whomever i want like that's are you kidding like and nobody's looking over our shoulder nobody's no advertisements no it's like wow it's incredible it's uh, it was unimaginable 10 years ago totally and yeah. i feel like for a long time i had that because i was like writing my own blog and oh yeah um and like that i essentially am my own boss i don't necessarily work anywhere but then increasingly i realized that associating yourself with larger like when i started writing my column for vogue five years ago i was like oh there's like a like a ser serious PR team here and I remember making this like stupid hashtag art video where it was like a pretend hazing uh, uh, sorority hazing that we filmed inside the library at Columbia University um, secretly that was um, all these girls being stripped naked by these other girls and like dragged through the hallway and um, it was just like a fake art video that was like meant to be security camera filming these girls being sort of violently hazed and um, yeah apparently Anna Wintour said sent a link to it to my editor and was just like is this the sort of thing that we are supporting at Vogue? <laughs> and Ouch. she was like, it's okay, it's okay. But then I was like, oh right, like there's like I have, there's a big brother situation happening. And then, right. I mean, in my book was the first time I really talked about doing like sex work and stuff like that. And mm. that was something that I felt like I couldn't casually talk about in my essays or on my blog without it affecting, yeah, my ability to get certain kinds of work. And I actually did, did feel like it took me until I felt like confident in my career where I was like, I don't think that this will derail my career mm. anymore. I feel like I've reached a place of like, you know, vague authority that it's okay. But it, that was something I didn't feel like I could talk about. How has the reception been? Like overwhelmingly positive, weirdly. Mm. And also I think is all, it was sort of right time as well because I think that the conversation around sex work and female sexual autonomy has just like grown so expansively yeah. become so much more accepted by wider culture to a degree but like primarily by the feminist movement right. in the past like two or three years right it's so much more like people suddenly care about sex workers rights and like no one cared about sex workers rights five minutes ago right you know? right not even the feminists were you what was was it a sugar daddy thing you were doing or what what was your yeah, I well, I always wrote about working as a dominatrix when I was like in my mid twenties because for some reason, I mean, I guess because of the hierarchy or whatever, the non full service hierarchy. The hierarchy. <laughs> Have you heard of that? No, that was the first time. Oh, it's pretty good. It's like, um, it's 
you know, basically a hierarchical system that exists within this sex work system that mm-hmm. is perpetuated both inside and outside of the industry. So it's like, this idea that um, at the top there are like, so the farther you are at the top, the more sort of invisibility, acceptability, um, you're, you're sort of like less of a whore, quote unquote. Right. Um, so at the top would be sort of like white, highly paid sugar babies who sort of like mimic a kind of monogamy in their in their sex work right right? like a sugar baby is like a primarily young woman who's like financially supported by an older man so their relationship looks like somewhat like a traditional romantic relationship and therefore it's more accepted by society and then below them would be like escort and then stripper because or cam Mm. girl because Mm. they don't technically fuck people right and then um porn star all the way down to sort of you know, street walking, street walking. Yeah. Where, where's dominatrix in that dominatrix is pretty high because they sort of are thought to have power, right? Like that right. they are perceived to have more autonomy than say a full service sex worker. So, and also, I mean, I've had some dominatrixes on the podcast and at least in their cases, it didn't involve sex per se. Yeah. It usually doesn't. Yeah. You know I mean, it almost never it's and it's legal, right? So the legality right. of it helps. Right. Um, and also it's like I think people have this perception where it's like doms like control men. So like the they don't people think of them less as being exploited, mm-hmm. whereas I think people's perception of um, full service sex workers like escorts, whatever, that they are the ones being exploited, that they have less right. autonomy. But um, and also and sometimes they do. Right. But there's it ranges from sort of highly paid being like a white middle-class woman in a, in a sort of a affluent city, you have a lot more agency and control and you're more well compensated than if you are like a black trans woman living in rural, whatever. Mm. So that there is like a whole range of autonomy in there, obviously. Right. right. But, um, so what was I saying? You're talking about writing about your, your, personal experience with oh, sex work right, right. and how it's so, been received. Because of this hierarchy, like um hierarchy of acceptance essentially, I felt like I could write about being a dominatrix because it's like less quote tragic. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And it's legal. Right. And then yeah, and then I started doing a sugar baby thing for years, which is um essentially escorting dressed up in this way that makes it more culturally accepted because it's yeah, mimics a traditional relationship could you have like multiple sugar daddies simultaneously yeah it's like though so there's really really popular sugar daddy websites like that host like that there are tens uh, over 10 million members on this main one seeking arrangement yeah and there's all types of relationships that are formed on it from people who are the idea is that the men are rich and that the women are providing some sort of youth or submission of to some degree right and that you could tr- truly be looking for a wife on there if and if a woman is looking just to marry a rich guy but often it's used to um where women see multiple men and that it's like a paper meet right hmm. so this idea is we are in a relationship and that's ongoing and you're helping me out or maybe it's like you pay my rent or you know, send me car payments or whatever it is. But often it's just like every time we meet, you're going to give me 800 bucks. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's a full range. Right. And do you think, well, I mean, your experience is limited to your experience, of course, but 
some some of the women I've spoken to in sex work have like uh it's it's been very sort of salient that a lot of the men it wasn't really about sex it was about loneliness and mm-hmm. being able to be honest with someone because in their if they're married they couldn't be honest with their wives and so the sex was like actually kind of a secondary issue if if an issue at all in some case i remember i think it was Susie bright do you know her yeah she told me i think it was her told me about when she was working as a an escort uh, or call girl i don't know what what the right word is and this guy would have her come uh every few months and his wife had died mm. and he would have her dress in his wife's clothing <gasps> oh and just God. have dinner Oh my God. Yeah. Which is like, part of it's like, it breaks your heart, but then in another way, it's like, think about the sort of emotional weight of that service you're providing. It's so intense. Yeah. Yeah. Really intense. I mean, that's, it's the classic thing that people say, right? That if you're a sex worker, like 50% of your job is you're actually a therapist, Mm. right? Yeah. Um, And I do think that that's, a lot of what you're saying does resonate with me. I mean, some people it literally is just about sex and they like want to hang out with you for an hour and like fuck you and don't care. Um, but I think for a ton of people, the um, this bubble of transparency that um, that and anonymity that is provided by a sex worker is like therapeutic, right? So they mm. talk to you about their problems, and I think that a lot of it comes from the idea whether people are conscious of this or not, is that a sex worker, um, that, that it's almost like you can't feel shame around them because their job has so much shame in it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, she's not going to judge you because look, 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 look what, what she's she doing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it almost like, sometimes that doesn't even come from a place of judgment. They just feel like this person, hmm. the judgment of the sex worker, but it's just like, this person won't judge me. Right. Um, and yeah, it's a ton of like, you know, I'm going through a divorce or complaining about their work or, you know what I mean? It's not just the sex component. Um, feeling like, you know, being touched. A lot of people don't have sex with their primary partner. I got an email from a guy. I was talking about that, about the, the tragedy, uh, particularly of young men, like who only touch each other, like when they're slamming their heads against each other in a football field or mm-hmm. something, you know? And I got an email from a guy saying he gets a haircut once a week because it's the only time anyone touches him. Oh, my God. That is so, so sad. I mean, there's also I mean, you probably know way more about this, but there's like psychological studies that show that not being touched and not feeling physical intimacy can like truly cause depression and despair. Right. Yeah. And kill infants. Whoa. Yeah. There's this whole uh, outbreak of uh, infantilism. It was called early in the 20th century, shortly after the sort of germ theory of, of illness, you know, became widely known and doctors decided that the healthiest, um, sort of, uh, the healthiest way to deliver a baby was deliver the baby. And then as quickly as possible, put the baby in a sterile environment. Mm-hmm. And so they had these little sterile chambers that they would put the babies in as soon as they were born. And then they would like, you know, run milk into them or they allow the nurse to take them out every, you know, few hours or whatever. Um, and the nurses were like, this is a terrible idea. This is terrible. And all these babies are dying. 
dying, yeah. thousands, tens of thousands of babies dying. And the doctors were like, well, uh, we don't understand it. It's the safest place for them. They're separate from the you know germs in the atmosphere. They're killing. And the, the nurses were like, you got to let us touch these babies. Babies need to be touched, you know. That's so yeah. sad. Yeah. And there's the famous Harry Harlow experiment with the infant um, monkeys where he had he would take the the monkeys and put them in a cage and on one side of the cage there was like a a wire thing that had milk uh, like a like a nipple you know mm -hmm. and on the other side of the cage was uh, a wire thing with like fur and soft you know cushioning and and stuff and the baby monkeys would go and cling to the thing that seemed like a monkey mm -hmm. and starve and wasn't there, I feel like I read about that where it's like they'd rather cling to the fake mother even if there was like spikes on it or something because there was like warmth yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there were some horrible things. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's sort of demonized in psychological research because everyone sees those, those images of the pathetic baby monkeys just like, uh, and, but he demonstrated something really important, you know, that. I think has actually been helpful because now, you know, pretty much, although my, you know, my wife's from Africa and she, she hates it when we walk around and you see people pushing babies in carts, you know, she's like, get a fucking sling, put that baby on your back. The baby needs to touch you. You know, the baby wants, you know what? It's easier. It's easier. You're pushing this fucking thing around with right. shock absorbers and, you know, bug fucking screens and stuff. Just get a piece of fabric and, you know, wrap it around your shoulders and carry the baby around. It's I babies love it. That. I yeah. never thought of that, 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 that it would be. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, to be hugged, like to be hugged is really, truly a powerful thing, especially mm. a good one. Yeah, it feels so healing. Um, one time I went to this Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meeting because uh <laughs> This sounds still so fake, like for a friend, but like it truly was. I was having a friend that was going through um, some problems with sexual compulsion. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I, I've never been to one. I'll go with you. And it turned out that it was actually a sex and love addicts anonymous, but also sex anorexics anonymous. Like oh. they, they, I didn't realize that it's connected. Mm. Like the, the, yeah. that organization sees both kinds of people. And so the sex anorexics um, were talking about how they are scared either scared of or have anxiety around or don't want to have sex with other people but that the absence of physical touch was having this like hugely detrimental impact on their lives and it was so sad because the instructor therapist person was just telling them like you know we recommend that you ask anyone who's close with you in your life to just um if you can have an extended hug with them because even that could have like a dramatically positive effect on your well-being and i was just like yikes like yeah. well i used to work as a massage therapist oh really yeah and it's interesting to see how people respond to being touched do uh, people make weird sex sounds at you when i was massaging them yeah um one woman came what yeah was it were you like did you feel sexually assaulted at work <laughs> <laughs> I filed a complaint oh, yeah. with HR. Uh, no, no, but it was a funny situation actually because she had been sleeping with a friend of mine and my friend told me that when she came, she like 
tossed her head around you know like unconsciously uh-huh. and like you know they'd been fucking in a bed and she was banging her head on the headboard and he was like whoa you know and then and he was sort of laughing he's like dude i gotta like borrow your motorcycle helmet you know and like fuck her with a helmet on you know protective gear and stuff and then he moved away and i had some stuff and she had to come pick up the stuff or i don't remember what it was but anyway she came to my apartment and and you know, I had the massage tables all set up and stuff. I was actually my main clientele base were models. Mm-hmm. People, why? Because I lived in this house full of fashion models, where like they would stay when they were in Barcelona. And uh-huh. I initially started because I was working with oncologists at a, a hospital, and I talked with them about how important um, you know mind body stuff was in in uh immune response and all that and they were like yeah you know that makes sense and um i've got a you know a patient would you be willing to like see her and that, so it started with cancer patients and then the models who i lived with were like dude you do you do massage like yeah like that's lucky can i you? you know can you hook me up <laughs> yeah i mean but it's <laughs> i mean everybody thinks like oh you're living with models like oh it's the life no, models are kind of sad generally. It's not it's not a good gig. I cannot imagine like your compl- your entire value is how hot you look and then like by the age of 30 like you have to sort of reconcile with an entire <laughs> the loss of your like profession yeah. and identity. Yeah, and you've like sacrificed your education and you're accustomed to people like kissing your ass all the time mm-hmm. for no reason. And there's an incredible amount of rejection in their lives, you know, like even like the hottest, 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 they're getting no, 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 most of the time, you know, and also they're they're treated like shit. Like you go to a a casting and, you know, like the people will be like, don't you think her nose is too big? Like, yeah, I don't know. Can you turn around again, honey? Yeah. Now look over there. Yeah. Her nose is too big. And they'll like talk about you that way right in front of you. You know, it's really objectifying. And so there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of sadness, a lot of despair. And like, but now I'm 22 and I didn't finish high school. And, you know, my family back in Romania needs the money. And like, there's a lot of it's it's rough. It's rough. And a lot of I think assessment or anxiety over whether someone likes you or wants to be your friend or wants to fuck you like solely because of how you look right which i think like probably a lot of people have a similar version where it's like is it solely because like i'm rich or because i'm famous yeah 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 i i learned actually I, i would say i learned a lot about women from uh the men the male models there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I learned a lot there. I don't, I don't think about this very often in terms of like how it informed my understanding. Well, one thing, for example, I learned about women. Um, I, I would go out to like a, a bar with these guys, right? And the way women reacted to them, like I'd never seen women act that way before. Like we'd walk into a bar and like, oh, we're going to play some pool. And within 10 minutes, there were like, you know, 10 women hanging around the table like, oh, what's your name? Are you from here? What's your name? Not to me, to them, right? And I'm just like, I'm the invisible dude. And just watching these women throwing themselves at these guys. Yeah. 
where you know the conventional view of female sexuality is that would never happen Mm -hmm. but it happens it happens all the time and these guys aren't rich they're not famous they're just like genetically amazing looking dudes and there's this one guy i won't say his name uh but he and i got to be pretty close um, most of the models, they, they would just stay there for a week or two when they were in Barcelona at a fashion show. This guy actually lived there. Uh, he and I were the only ones who lived in this complex of apartments. And uh, so he and I got close. And he was um, half American Indian, I think. He grew up in the Midwest. And he was discovered when he was in Germany in the army. Like he went to a club and someone was like, hey, you should be a model. And um so this is one of the best looking guys I've ever known in my life, right? Like fucking Tarzan. He's just a beautiful body, broad shoulders, like real like distinct muscles, but not like not a guy who worked out. Mm-hmm. In fact, all the only exercise he did was he had these marble balls, like you know, like tennis ball size. And he would stand out in the gardens with three of them in each hand and just rotate them in his hands. <laughs> you know, and in these poses and just like in the sun and <laughs> Uh, anyway, beautiful dude and a real sweetheart, a very innocent, sweet guy, but he looked like Tarzan, right? Mm. So he would go like, I remember at one point he went to, uh, the Bahamas to like do a bathing suit shoot or underwear or something. And it was him and like two Swedish, you know, Viking goddesses. And he came back and. And he's like, dude, I'm in love. I'm in love. Oh, I met this woman. She's so amazing. Oh, da, 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 da. And then like two days later, like, what's up, Dave? Like, oh, I just said his name. Uh, he's depressed. Like, really? Like, what's up, man? She hasn't answered my letters. I sent her a poem. I wrote a poem for her and she hasn't answered. Oh. And like, and then I made this like little painting. And, I, and it's like these women would see him and... And from the, what he looked like, that's what they imagined him to be, right? right? But then they'd see who he really was, and they're like, I'm not into this, like, innocent boy. I want a, like, fucking monster to fuck me like crazy, and, you know, that's... And so women who were, like, who would have appreciated the real him, mm-hmm. they weren't... They didn't go anywhere near him. They were totally intimidated by him. Also, he was used to the most beautiful women in the world, so he probably wouldn't have even noticed them. So he's right. totally fucked, right? Like yeah. the women who are into him aren't the right women for him. The women he's into aren't the right women for him. And so from that, I was like, that must be what it's like to be a really hot woman. Like these guys look at you and they're like, oh, she, you know, she has big tits. She loves to fuck, right? <laughs> tits and loving to fuck have nothing to do with each other, you know, just because yeah. that excites that in you and you project that onto her. Like you have no idea who she is. You know, yeah. and also like sometimes even dressing super provocatively and like, um, yeah. I don't want to say exploiting, but using your sex appeal. Also, I don't think translates wanting to fuck. Not I think at all. It translates wanting, wanting attention. attention. Yeah. Exactly. And it's really weird because like, do you think I've thought about this more recently as I think my taste in what sort of men or people I'm attracted to, I think the type of person that you are attracted to want to fuck or want to be in relationships with must say a lot about you right like i i've always just thought like oh it's just people have taste but is it that or if you are attracted to like hyper 
attractive, symmetrical models, like, does that convey something about you that's different than someone who's interested in someone who, you know, looks more normal or it looks like they've never worked out in their life or whatever. I just feel like I've never been attracted to someone who is extremely traditionally hot in an intimidating way or who looks like they spend a lot of time on their appearance and body because I think to me that translates a sort of um, like vainness or I know it's it's like I'm not attracted to the idea that someone spends time in the gym because I think I process it as like you obviously don't spend that much time like reading or you know and but yeah. I guess these things are judgments I don't know well, I think what you pointed to earlier is really important that I don't know if that was when we were recording or not, but we were talking about how people reach a stage of maturity, hopefully at some mm-hmm. point where they're like, they recognize that how hot someone looks and, and how, uh, how, um, well, not only how, uh, compatible you are, but also how sexually, exciting that person would be are unrelated mm-hmm. yeah you know like just because it looks like a sports car doesn't mean it corners well you know it's like there there's a lot of deception in that and i think i don't know if it's true but my sense is that women are much more keyed into that than men are mm-hmm. like men are more like i want her because she's hot Right. As opposed to, I wonder what she's really like, and I wonder, you know, what it's going to, you know, if we're actually going to have fun together, even sexually, much less conversation and, you know, if we like the same kind of food and friends and all that. Yeah. But I think men waste so much time chasing women around because they're physically attracted to them without understanding that that's going to wear off. Yeah. And sometimes I think it works in the reverse where women are attracted to men who are attracted to them. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like I think sexual attention sometimes can feel validating and that in itself can make you like you can mirror it without realizing. Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde said, Oscar Wilde said everything, but (laughs) but he said, uh, let me get this right. He said, uh, men learn to love women they're attracted to and women learn to be attracted to the men they love. Right. Which I think is maybe it's that could be true, but maybe it's oversimplified, right? Like everybody, I've never been the kind of person who's like, I've been friends with this person for five years. And then one day I realized that I wanted to fuck them. Like that truly makes no sense to me. Like, I'm like, how, like sexual attraction is majorly important to me, but I've come to realize that that is not a good indicator of compatibility or the ability to be in relationship. But like, I don't know, maybe what I was saying before, I feel like I was saying it in a roundabout, not super clear way, but like when I was younger, for example, from right when I was a teenager up until I would say my like late mid late twenties, I was like primarily or like almost solely attracted to a specific type of like wafy, uber thin, sort of like weak looking man. That's why you work at Vice. Right, exactly. <laughs> it sort of is Thomas I, Morton. You, you hooked up with him? You don't know who I'm talking about? No, I do. Uh, That's a no comment, but he's my friend. <laughs> that was a shot in the dark. <laughs> so I was just when when you say wafy, thin, you know, like that's who I think of. He's, yeah. he's funny. Oh my god, he's so funny. I love yeah, him. Yeah. Um, no, certainly like vice employees. Like, yeah, we're sort of my topic demographic. Brooklyn. Yeah, and 
Um, one and then and then eventually, sort of in my late twenties, my taste started expanding, and I was like really attracted to, and I valued the fact that I was attracted to a wide variety of people and people who, in some ways, are not traditionally attractive, or who I found something so sexy about that, mm-hmm. like in the past, I wouldn't have related to. And a friend of mine kind of casually threw this out one time where she was like, well, because I, I made a joke about how, you know, for the first 10 years I was having sex in my life, I weighed more than every man I had sex with because they were all just like these little waves. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, do you, you like to break them? Yeah, exactly. I was like an R. Crumb woman, like crushing them. <laughs> but um, she was like, do you think it's something about the fact that you didn't like the the idea or didn't feel safe being sexual with someone who was physically threatening? Mm. And I was like, what I never had thought about that but that might be true and then mm-hmm. as I was confident enough to like that there might be some kind of confidence in the expansion of your right sexual interest or even just yeah like that the, your sexual interest like if you're attracted to someone who's insecure or people who are I had this like, roommate who was always attracted to guys who were like sort of chubby and insecure and I think it's because she wanted to be like worshipped, you mm. know? So I think that these things are, do reflect something about sure. us. No doubt. No doubt. Like, yeah, like in a deep Jungian sense too. Like we're we're always trying to work things out so we're attracted to... I mean, I, I had, if I had to like name a recurring sort of thing in my early years, it was like I wanted to save women. Oh, right. You know, I was like, I wanted, I I was attracted to women and unfortunately there are a lot of them who have been hurt really badly or raised in a fucked up family. And cause I always felt like, like unfairly lucky in my family. Like my parents just loved us unconditionally. It was always clear, you know, they said they loved us every day, you know, like to the point where it was annoying. (laughs) And like, no matter what you do in life, as long as you're happy, we'll be happy. We don't care. You want to be a doctor. You want to, you know, be a truck driver. It doesn't matter. Like they were just like perfect. And growing up, I became aware how unusual that was. And then when I would get close to a woman and she'd share her wounds with me, that made me feel that was like a form of intimacy that really worked for me, you know? And so I ended up in relationships with, um, you know, not always, but a lot of the time with women who were, um, struggling with that stuff, you know? And then for a while I even thought like the only really good sexual connection would be with someone who was really hurt Mm. because that like, like when I, uniquely found a way through all the obstacles to her heart then there was like that was the deepest connection because i was the only one that she who understood her you know interesting so is that would that be considered a savior complex or or potentially a way of i don't know i mean i'm guessing like of obscuring I'm not having to deal with your own issues, right? Because you're you're distracted by you're using like someone else's issues as a crutch. Could be, I don't know. I, yeah. And in some of those relationships, like when there were problems, it was always her fault. So it was easier for me to be like, yeah, of course, you know. You have hashtag trauma. Yeah, exactly. You're bringing your baggage. Your baggage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whereas me with my perfect childhood, <laughs> I have no problems. I'm fine. Yeah, there, I'm sure there was some of that. And and honestly, I think 
in retrospect, some of it was also that I hadn't yet figured out who I was sexually. So, um, yeah, and there's a, there, there's an insecurity that it's kind of like what you're talking about, the women being attracted to, you know, overweight dudes or whatever because they want to be worshipped and the guy's not, you know, doesn't have a lot of opportunities. So some of that, too, were like, I mean the woman there's one or two women i'm thinking of particularly who were physically gorgeous mm-hmm. uh so it wasn't that they didn't have lots of men chasing them around but they were they were prickly they were really hard they were not particularly friendly mm-hmm. you know and so it made me feel very special like that i got through there that she accepted me and trusted me i still feel that I, I still feel it's an honor to be trusted, especially by women. Yeah, I guess it's. it seems like for you, maybe it's about acceptance or some kind of like special access that makes you feel validated. Yeah. I'm psychoanalyzing yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, but I think, don't we all look for that in intimacy? Like we all want to feel, even if, you know, if it's a, not an exclusive relationship, you still want to feel that there's something exclusive about what we share. There's mm-hmm. something I bring to your life that only I bring to your life. Of course. You know, so it's, I think that's comforting and it allows, at least at this stage in my life, it allows me to be a much like, it's like, it's almost like you can be very possessive in one realm and that allows you to be totally unpossessive outside of that realm. Yeah. Definitely. I feel like something I've realized for me is key and necessarily necessary in my relationships. Um, well, my romantic relationships and also my friendship relationships is being with someone who you feel is interested and prioritizes their own growth. Right. Especially if you're, this is someone who you want to be with for a long time. Like I had a friend recently talking about how, you know, she's been dating this guy for a while and she wants to get married and have kids, but that he has depression and, and, and isn't, um, treating it like a sort of afraid of treating it. And she's like, I want, you want to be able to know Mm. that if you're going to be, if you're going to plan a life with someone that it's like, okay, this is an issue for us now, but that we're going to grow and change and work on it. And we're both doing that. And that it's not going to be, or potentially won't be an issue forever. And even if it is, it's something that we'll, you know, learn to process and how to, yeah, how to deal with it in a constructive way it's kind of like you don't want to be like yeah i'm going to sign up for the rest of my life with you and like you know that that this is it it's yeah you're stuck i'm gonna stay here with you right that there's no evolution and i think like it's like i almost like don't know if i would date someone who like wasn't in therapy do you know what i mean i'm Mm. like you need help we all need help do you know Mm. yeah 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 i i i agree i mean it's almost counterintuitive but like when you're with someone who who's too eager to please Mm -hmm. i find that off-putting it's like no take care of yourself like the best thing you can do for me is look after yourself i should always come in second in your hierarchy of like who matters yeah that's something that i um have been working out for myself for the few last few years like this is yeah it's like vulnerable to talk about but 
definitely working in the sex industry for so long, it becomes this interesting thing where so much of your sexual identity becomes about providing a service or a fantasy for someone else. And mm. that can that in and of itself can be really exciting, right? To be right. like a provider of fantasy. It can feel really powerful. Um, and to think of someone else first and to make someone happy in that way. And then sometimes if that becomes such a huge part of your sexuality, it's difficult to kind of like untangle the necklace of like, what do I like outside of this? It's almost like, I don't know if it's correct to use the term, like you need a control group or something mm -hmm. where you, where it almost became difficult for me and still is in some ways to be like, what do I like outside of, um, seeing it through the lens of what you would like if I liked or what would be good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's complicated. It is complicated because I mean, I think it's legitimate to, to conclude like, well, what I like is turning you on. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's actually what I like. Yeah. And so like this thing that turns you on might not be a thing I like, but the fact that it turns you on means I kind of like it. That makes sense. and But then you don't want that to be the only way that you get pleasure right. because then at a point you become kind of invisible. Sure. Like you need to sort of work out what your own desires are. And I think that that is a risk of being um, like a provider for a long time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and I don't know if women are more susceptible to that particular trap than men, maybe because there's like an innate, you know, like I want to give the baby what the baby needs and that makes me happy. You know what I mean? Cause like my survival and the survival of this baby are so intimately connected mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, there's that sort of like a cognitive pattern that can play out in other relationships. That's true. I mean, certainly women have often wanted to baby me, <laughs> really? you know, which is annoying as fuck. You and don't like that? No. No, not if it's not if it's overdone, you know, if it's like I can take off my own shoes, you know, I can you know, whatever like there's there's something also I lived alone as you know. And so when like a woman comes into your world and starts wanting to like rearrange things, it can get annoying. That's strange. I don't yeah. I do not have that mother complex. Uh, do you think that um, in terms of what men are attracted to, it feels like there is like a general stereotype right that the idea of a woman who's like quote slutty or promiscuous that that is that that might be attractive specifically in terms of wanting to fuck them once or twice but that ultimately that's an unattractive quality i think it, real? I, I think it relates to what i said earlier about how we want to occupy a unique space in someone's life mm -hmm. and so i think that a right. woman who's slutty can be unattractive because the man then is like, well, how am I going to occupy a unique space? You fuck fi 500 dudes. You've had every possible experience. There's nothing I'm going to bring into this that's unique and new to you. Mm. So I don't see where I'm going to find a safe space. But do you think that that stems from um, an insecurity that's kind of perpetuated by a societal idea of masculinity, which is like a lot of your value is like making a girl come, having a, like being virile, having a boner basically, um, that, 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 that to think that you have nothing yeah. to provide right. beyond that right. or like, or sort of not factoring intimacy into the situation where like this woman, mm -hmm. like 
I mean, as someone who identifies as slutty, like sex can be really fun in an anonymous way in terms of novelty, but like having true intimacy with someone and loving someone, that sex is different. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think so many of the problems that we have is that men assume women think like men and women assume men think like women and we're both wrong, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. So I take an example like men's, I, I, I think probably one of the greatest sources of unnecessary anxiety in the world is men's hangups about their dicks. Really? Oh God. I mean, the, the, the entire like rhino horn problem in Africa and shark fins and like all these, you know, weird things that Chinese people are killing for aphrodisiacs. They're there to God. make their dicks hard. They've got some cultural belief that the fucking rhino horn, which is nothing but fingernails. <laughs> It's the exact same material as fingernails. You could take a whole shit shitload of fingernails, grind them up, you know, form them into a rhino horn, and chemically it's exactly the same. But they're killing all these endangered rhinos so Chinese dudes can get their dicks hard. It's crazy, you know? And so, I, anyway, my point was that, so men, a lot of men, I think, especially young men, I think maturity is an important thing. So in mm -hmm. that sense, culture is very important because America is a very immature culture and celebrates immaturity and youth. And like, you know, if you're over 40, like nobody wants to hear about your sexuality and all that. Uh, whereas Europe, France and Spain are totally different in that respect. But what I was going to say is that because young men often have a sort of bigger is better attitude mm -hmm. you know like bigger tits are sexier and you know big booty and kim kardashian and you know like that sort of uh all you can eat mentality they think women have that so if you don't have ron jeremy dick you're inadequate whereas actually i don't know maybe you have more insight into this than me but size queens tend to be gay men Right. I mean, I, I, I do know a couple of women who are size queens and I'm always like, really? Like, it's such an interesting thing to me that would never, ever cross my mind. I mean, definitely like I have eyes and can appreciate beauty. Right. So like sometimes when someone has like a really nice dick, that's uh, you notice. And that that is a positive. Right. But like nice doesn't necessarily correlate with huge. Like right. it's like sometimes people just have um and women too, where there's something about like symmetry and right. it's like the skin is nice or whatever. It's like, who knows? But I just don't think that that, I truly don't think that matters that much to women. Right. And, but men by and large think it's a huge issue. So they're paying money to get the ligaments cut in their dicks to make them longer and get fat injected. And they're, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, all these pills, all this shit, every, I don't know if you're like porn sites, it's just all these dick enlargement things. Yeah. Yeah. Do it, they work? No, no. Yeah. These pumps, these vacuum pumps. No, none of it works. And none of it fucking matters. That's that's the tragedy of it. It's like all this anxiety over nothing. Dude, like if, you know, even if you have a, an unusually small dick, like learn to go down on a woman properly, be cool, get over your fucking hangups. Because the thing is, what I love about women is 
and it's not exclusive to women, but I think women are so much more interested in who the guy is mm-hmm. rather than in these very sort of shallow physical markers. And I, I feel sorry. I feel literally sorry for women having to deal with dudes who are so limited in their ability to appreciate who someone is, especially if she's hot, because they can't see past it. Yeah. There's a tragedy in there. Well, it's almost controversial to say stuff like that, though, that like men think different than women, which I mean, I actually truly believe. But it feels like now we've entered the space where to say that is triggering for a lot of people. Yeah, those people don't listen to my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I say shit way worse than that all the time. But it makes no sense to me. I'm like, obviously, men think different than women. Thank God. It would be so boring otherwise. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's obvious. It's, you know, it's like people say, well, you know, I don't know if dogs have consciousness. Like, have you ever been with a dog? <laughs> like, come on. It's it's like science is so far behind common sense in many ways. Yeah. And not that that's even science. This whole blank slate thing has been repudiated, but it keeps getting brought back. But it's it's absurd. Like, I've, you know, I've studied evolution a lot. There's no question that men and women by and large, think very differently, you know, cognitively process things differently. Our sexual response is very different. Wednesday Martin was here actually sitting where you are a few weeks ago. And we were talking about that. And her insight is that, that men's libido is more, and again, you know, the disclaimer always, there's a spectrum, there are exceptions, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, But generally men's libido is more, um, sort of spontaneous, just always there. And women's sexual response is more situational and contextual. And so her point was like, you can't really say who's is stronger. It depends. Like if a woman is with someone that turns her on, her sexual urgency could be way stronger mm-hmm. than men's, right? Um, whereas just walking down the street, she's probably not thinking about it. She's probably thinking about something else. Whereas the guy walking in, you know, who sees her walking down the street is like, I want to fuck her. You know, like it's there. It's always there for men. I think Jerry Seinfeld did this bit where he said, he said, men are like firemen. They're like ready to go. You ring the bell and they're ready. Like five seconds, they're always ready to go. Women are like fire. Like the conditions have to be right. Yeah. And I don't, and it's weird because I think I've heard that, um, I think it was, um, Tristan Taramino, that's her name, right? Yeah. Tristan. Um, I was listening to her podcast and she was talking to um, a psychologist, I think. And he was saying that in terms of fantasy, men more often fantasize about things that they want to actually happen. So they, mm. or have happened. So, but that women often fantasize about things that are that really turn them on in fantasy but that they wouldn't really want in real life which i mean is like a huge explainer for like a rape or abuse fantasy right um and which you might want to sort of recreate in a role play scenario but you wouldn't want to be raped i assume and um i feel like i really my what turns me on is so in my head so different than what i want in real life really well first of all in terms of the in my own fantasies, I like almost never appear. 
Like I, um, you don't appear. Yeah. Ah. It's like, I pretty much primarily fantasize about, um, like a, a sort of young, like, you know, 18, 19 year old girl who sort of fulfills this really archetypal, archetypical idea of what like a hot, like a basic hot woman that like a basic bro would like in some sort of like power dynamic with a guy who usually is more like a disembodied voice kind of person or like a non-existent in the fantasy where she's being like objectified by him. And I do find that images of women arouse me, but like, I don't necessarily want to sleep with women very much. Um, and I don't know if that's like, because I've been like conditioned and society says that women are, are sexual objects, but like, Truly, sometimes I Google pictures of like Kate Upton and to like get myself ready to like masturbate. It's so random. But like I, I think Kate Upton's pretty, but like I don't want to fuck her at all. You know? See, I don't know that, what does that's, that mean? that's where we differ. Really? Oh, you want to fuck Kate Upton? <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. I but I, I'm like, what is that? Like I'm like I feel like a teenage boy. I'm like Kate Upton boob, and then I'm like, <laughs> okay, ready. <laughs> ready to go yeah what does that mean do you know what that means being like a you know expert (laughs) that you want to look at kate upton's tits before you masturbate yeah like that um like that i think a lot of women want to see women in pornography even if they're not attracted to like so many women Mm. i know watch like lesbian porn yeah um well don't they say like women like women inhabit the women they see that's kind of what i feel like i often yeah. want to see women who look like almost like a cartoonish version of like me yeah i'd watch that <laughs> yes let me know if you ever hook that up okay right? well i uh, mean it, it many of much of it exists on the internet where it's like a, a version of like me at 19 but like more sort of like cartoonishly like right busty so and you're like, relating to her and it's funny because because it's like i'm thinking when i watch porn I'm re- I'm not like relating to the dude. I don't right. even necessarily notice the dude. Mm-hmm. I'm relating to her pleasure. Oh, so you need the woman to be enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If if she's faking it, I, it turns me off a lot. And also, since I know a lot about sex, I can tell if she's faking it. Oh, like, it's if, very obvious. Yeah. Like I'll you know I'll notice if her like if her face and upper chest like flushes or if she's curling her toes or not and it's like you know like yeah yeah i had uh, i've had some really great porn stars on this podcast uh, um oh shit i forget her name uh white uh angela white was just on recently oh i don't know her she's great she's super smart and she's like the biggest porn star in the world right now um yeah she's really cool she's australian and she studied sexuality and she's like very intellectual about it she really um is exploring herself and culture and like she's she's great she just did a scene with rocco so Freddie. yeah he flew from europe just to do a scene with her and he's the famous for being sort of brutal right i mean but in an obviously consensual way but yeah. just like really like rough sex rough but loving yeah, okay. it's it's kind of a strange juxtaposition, but one that a lot of women seem to find very compelling. Totally. Yeah. I I can get into that. There's like one 
porn star that this is like the only male porn star that sometimes I like watching a video with him in. His name is like Mick something. Mm. He has like a 13 inch dick and it just feels like another world, right? Where you're just like this, just like the idea of being sort of like pounded. Something about that is a, is hot. But um, so the porn star you had on, why does she say that she does it? Because, um, you know, obviously there's like a lot of reasons pe- people get into porn, but it is one of those things where I'm like, why? Like, it's almost like sometimes I'm like, if you're going to be in the sex industry, it's interesting. It's an interesting choice to make it a public form of the sex industry, right? Because invisibility mm. in that world is so valuable because we still live in a place that it's difficult to transcend a porn star past, really. Yeah. Although, isn't it interesting right now, you know, what's going on with Stormy Daniels and politics and how unapologetic she is mm-hmm. and how like the fact that she's a porn star doesn't really seem to matter Yeah, to her. The shame is deflected onto Trump, but it doesn't, at least as far as I can tell, like there doesn't seem to be a lot of shame associated with it for her. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's an interesting cultural moment. You know, there's lots of interesting shit going on. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what she would have said about that. But I, what I remember is her feeling like uh, talking about how sexuality, like from the time she was a teenager, um, like she just felt like very sexual and very unashamed and she couldn't understand why people were trying to shame her. And she was like, no, this is fun. I'm learning. Uh, you know, I'm connecting to people. I reject anyone or anything trying to tell me not to explore this. This is innately fascinating. And I can really relate to that. I mean, that's the same. My experience is the same. I'm obviously not a porn star, although I do have an AVN award. What? You didn't Why? know that? You didn't know that? Oh, didn't you like walk into the background of a scene once or something? <laughs> oh, you're cruel. Walk into the I background you totally of a that you, like, scene. That you like had some like, it was a cameo. Yeah. No fucking background, girl. Oh, you don't win the trophy <laughs> for walking around in the background. I don't know what kind of porn you watch. You were like an extra. <laughs> With the gangbang. <laughs> no, I was, uh, yeah, the the film was called Marriage 2.0, mm-hmm. and I'd had a cameo. Cassie and I played ourselves being interviewed. The woman, the lead, uh, India Summer, is the lead actress, and she plays a filmmaker who's opening up her relationship, and she decides to make a film about like recent research and sexuality to try to understand her insecurities and this and that. So she interviews us as the authors of sex at dawn. So like I basically did the same interview I've done a thousand times and then she starts to cry and like runs off set. And then the next scene is I go into the kitchen where she's sort of, you know, getting herself together and she and I have a heart to heart talk about relationships and monogamy and jealousy and all these things. And yeah, I won. That doesn't sound like a porn. It's a porn movie. And then she goes and fucks somebody. Oh. But not me. If I was watching that, no offense, I feel like I would fast forward through that part. Because like, (laughs) (laughs) like I would never go to Pornhub to watch whatever you just talked about. (laughs) Plot development. Yeah. 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 yeah, It was a very high budget uh, movie. And yeah, I won. I I was up against Ron Jeremy. And um, 
Ryan Driller and I don't remember the other funny names in my category. Uh, but it was the category's best non-sex performance. That is, I love that they even have that. Yeah. I, sh- I If next time we meet in Topanga, you can hold my trophy. That's amazing. It's Congratulations. A, yeah, thank you. I'm very proud. Is that, proud. have you won other rewards in your life or is that, is that it really? <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> That's pretty much it at this point. Yeah. It's my only trophy. I think uh, I'll have a motherfucker award, you know, as a producer. Right. So it'll be the porn award and the motherfucker uh, prize, you know, <laughs> honorable mention, dishonorable mention. Uh, but we, we were in the middle of something there. Oh, we were talking about shame and I think like, or, you know, transcending. Oh, I know what it was like. As soon as I had sex, I was fascinated by it oh, right. and I just wanted to know everything. Yeah. And I like, I was 15 and my girlfriend, she could come when I went down on her, but she didn't come when we had, you know, fucked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is why that's so interesting. What's, right. You know, what's going on? And I wasn't threatened by it or anything. I was just like. What's going on? So I like went out and bought vibrators and dildos and Benoit balls and French ticklers. Wow, 15? 15. I had a lockbox. God, I hope my mother doesn't listen to this episode. Uh-huh. I had a lockbox, like a little safe for all the, it was like a tool chest. And and she was game. She's like, yeah, experiment on me. I don't know. See what, you know. And we did. I, I tried all these different things and like okay now let's see how this works and how's that and you know from one to five you know how good does this feel and how good does that feel and i was studying that shit and then masturbating i was like you know immediately was like okay this is a this isn't just about coming this is about learning like how to ride this wave up to almost coming and then not come this is like a martial art discipline here about it and was it about control for when you had a partner yeah well i i didn't masturbate till like three months before i had a partner uh-huh. so there wasn't a lag for people who don't want to hear about my masturbatory <laughs> you could fast forward through this section <laughs> like because there's a lot coming <laughs> so to speak yeah no so you were talking about we were, earlier we were talking about slut ever and i have some friends who are writers and who know me pretty well and they have been encouraging me to write a sexual memoir i know i you told me about that and i was like uh, yes please really because you know, when you were talking about it and you were like, you know, the feminist thing and, you know, sex workers rights and all the, you know, the culture has changed. I don't think the culture wants to hear from like old white dudes in terms of their sexuality. I think that's still like that's an area, you know, you're over 40 and you're talking about sex. You're a creep. It's really interesting. And I, I do think that that is largely true. Like I wrote um, a co- one of my Vogue columns, I think it was probably two years ago or something, which was why aren't men allowed to talk or why can't men talk about sex or something. And um, I reference you in it because it's because I do think that women don't want to hear men talk about it or that they feel like men should not be able to talk about it more like because you know men have controlled the dialogue around sex and and controlled to an extent women's sexualities for so long that i think a huge part of our culture now is just like shut the fuck up men right. in general like right. especially mansplaining about yeah, yeah mansplaining which is like the most insane word ever it's like it's just literally condescension which i think exists ac- across genders right but um 
Yeah, and I think that when men can talk about sex, it uh, it's either a gay man, so that feels safe, or that there has to be some sort of scientific mm. anthropological association with it, um, which is why I think people do want to hear you talk about it, but I don't know if if you didn't have the sex at dawn sort of sexual, uh, intellectual sexual knowledge that you have, without that context, I think people, it would be like less palatable for people. Do you think that's true? Well, I wonder about it. Um, you know, which is why I think if I do it, I, it would probably be a last book. Like when I really totally don't give a fuck anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, because, but on the other hand, it may be, like an incredibly um, comforting thing because essentially the the if I were to write about my experiences with you know candidly it would be about how much I've learned from situations that I was unexpectedly um, welcomed into and how so much is going on that people can't imagine. Like, they don't know that these things are possible. Mm-hmm. Like, like probably half a dozen women have, have explicitly asked me to have sex with their daughters. What? Yeah. <laughs> because or, they're just or, like, you're, you're respectable. Right. Like, will you please, like, show my daughter? Because she, she has no idea. She's with this boyfriend, like he's, you know, between you and me, that boyfriend, forget about it. I want her to know what she's missing. Yeah, like what respectful, thoughtful sex that's a pri- that partly prioritizes someone else's pleasure kind of thing. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I had a woman recently tell me uh, that she had never been with a man where she felt that him coming wasn't the central point of sex. Yeah, I think that's a hangout for a lot of women. I mean, which I relate to from a previous point in my life, you know, especially like from watching porn. But I think that for you to write that book, I think it would be important because first of all, I think we live in a time now where men, the way that men are educated about sex, if you can even call it education it's just like don't do that and that's offensive and like that's assault and like don't touch that and like it's very much like no 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 versus like this is what you should do like where is that knowledge coming from yeah men need sex education or examples of sexual positivity sexual sensitivity more than ever you know what i mean and not just in how to teach a woman or be good at sex but just like to under to be able to like subvert um common ideas about masculinity like dick size like you were talking mm. about what's expected of them from them like n- n- what that it's okay to be submissive sexually which is something that's like completely like that men feel so much insecurity about um and i feel like if you wrote that book i, I don't know what the plan is but i can't imagine it's just like i fucked this person and then i fucked with this person you mm. know what i mean it, there's it could be no it's about learning yeah. I mean, like the first time, uh, I don't know if you and I talked about this in the past, but the first time I was in a three-way, it was like one of the most profound experiences of my life. It, Why? It totally changed. Um, well, it was, okay, so this was a long time ago in Spain. Uh, I was I was out with a friend. My, my friend was a musician and I was at the bar. He was playing in this club, this bar. And I was alone and he and I were going to hang out after. 
after the gig. And so I was sitting next to this woman at the bar who I'd seen around and maybe we'd spoken. I don't, I don't remember. And we were talking and, and I was doing my PhD, you know, sexuality. So it came up pretty readily. And um, we were talking about fantasies and she was like, yeah, well, you know, my fantasy, my top fantasy is pretty cliched, you know, be with you know, two guys at once and it's never going to happen. It's too complicated. You know, man, you're all like, you know, insecure and this and that. And I was like, I'm not insecure. And actually that guy over there on stage, you know, I don't think he's very insecure, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's a friend of mine. And, and she's like, are you serious? I was like, do you actually want this to happen? Or is this just a thing? And she's like, I would love for it to happen. And so then the gig finished and he came over and I, you know, the three of us talked for a while and then she went to make a call or you know, bathroom or whatever. And I said to him like, Hey, here's the situation, you know, what do you think? And he's like, dude, I'm straight. And I was like, I'm straight too. So there's no confusion. It's not going to, you know, go in a direction that we're not comfortable with. I said, but like, are you, do you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, like, okay, let's try it. Like, why not? So we went back, the three of us went back to my place and, um, like the, the, one of the things that I remember very saliently is that she was very like, very attentive to the, like that she didn't want anyone to feel left out, you know? And mm-hmm. it's like, this is her first experience. She's like living her fantasy, but she was very much like, Hey, I, you know, I, I haven't forgotten you, you know, like you post anxiety, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but I wasn't feeling that at all. And I don't think he was either. I think we were totally relaxed and, and it was great. And there was a moment where this tells you how long ago it was. I had to go like, change the turn over the cassette or change the cd or whatever the technology was so i went over and i was messing with the music and i decided to roll a joint i'm sitting there rolling a joint and the first thing is it's probably the first time i had ever been comfortable naked with another man in the room Mm -hmm. yeah because it was a sexual situation if it were in a locker room or the beach i i would feel weirded out but the, the the eroticism actually made the nakedness comfortable, strangely. Yeah. Um, so that I noticed that, and then I'm rolling the joint. I'm sitting there, and they're fucking over there in front of me, and and it didn't feel erotic. Like I, my fantasies of it was it was going to be like porn, you know, fucking yeah, dicks and this and that. And But what it felt like watching them fucking, first of all, they were not aware of me. There was like this incredible trust. I felt trusted. Right. Because they were so vulnerable and they were in this moment together. And they knew I was relaxed. So by this point, she wasn't worried about me. And he knew I was never going to shame him you know, about his body or the way he fucked or whatever, you know, like, and there was just this, like, it it just felt loving. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I I was amazed by it. I I was just sitting there like this. I don't care about sex. The sex isn't the point here. The point is we trust each other and we're expressing this amazing level of trust here. And it deepened my friendship with him for like a lot and uh yeah and so it 
and maybe in some ways that was the sort of germination of what later became Sex at Dawn, which was very much about how sex is about all these other things in our primordial past, not reproduction, right? It's about establishing these social networks and maintaining trust and, and cohesion and peace in this hunter-gatherer band. I think I really felt that experientially for the first time then. Yeah, it's so... That kind of experience, like you said, is so intensely vulnerable. And I feel like the times that I've had threesomes or group sex or whatever, um, the the best and most memorable experiences are ones that, yeah, like you said, weren't didn't feel like hypersexual, but felt more playful. Mm. Like there's this like aspect of like truly adult vulnerable play like you feel like you're being silly mm. um there's like a lot of physical contact and like yeah it is sexual because you're probably like gonna come or whatever maybe not but and you're having sex literally but it's it's about um connection it's it's, it's i've always thought of sex as like a shortcut to intimacy like mm. that it's it's a language in a way and it's a language that some people are better at than other people, but that some people find easier than communicating intellectually um, or yeah. conversationally. And I think I'm, I, I can do, I can do both obviously, but sometimes having sex with someone before you get to know them that well, that afterward, that there is this undeniable connection. And I had I was just talking about this the other day, I had one sexual experience where um, I had one of my best friends, was having sex with her boyfriend in the same room or in the same bed actually that I was having sex with this other guy and we weren't touching each other it was like very individual with our partners but that um that that it it made me feel closer to them because it was mm. this intense vulnerability and it was funny because I I felt really envious of and admiring of the fact that this couple who i was friends with really were able to it seemed have sex in the way that they would have sex if no one was watching like that they weren't performing for us that it was sort of like slow and almost boring you know what i mean and like he was going down on her for like ages and she was like with her eyes closed and she was like barely making any sounds and i was like oh this is how they have sex like when we're when we're not here and that you have shown that to me or felt mm. like i could be there for that felt really profound in a way the absence of performance. Yeah, and just and and that is vulnerability, right? The absence of performance and and also just feeling so comfortable with me that that you were able to get to that space because mm -hmm. sometimes you can't even not perform with your one partner who you have sex with all the time, you know? Like that's a challenge. Perform uh, performance anxiety is a a phrase that's always made me angry. Why? When it comes to sex specifically? Yeah. Well, and when else do we use it, really? I mean, I don't know. Do violinists talk about performance anxiety? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> public speaking a little. <laughs> yeah, well, anxiety around public speaking, but <laughs> performance anxiety per se, you know, it's Most it's about sex, men yeah. not getting it up or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it the it pisses me off because the the assumptions embedded within it are so pernicious in a way like i'm not performing this isn't a circus right you know like you know what i mean it's like it's demeaning whether it's applied to women or to men we're not here to perform for each other you know it's so true 
you know so yeah i mean so if i ever write this book like a lot of it would be about i hope getting past shame because i felt shame i felt you know anxiety and stuff and i worked through it early with the help of women that i feel very much indebted to yeah i think that and also the the language that we use to talk about things i think helps us to not helps us but you know language informs the way we think about things so the idea mm. that it's a performance i think is embedded in your brain whether you realize it or not and right. like a lot of people talk about that when we the use the term losing your virginity yeah exactly which or taking her virginity it's yeah, right yeah yeah and like that's something i write about all the time which is that um that I think that there is this sort of really ingrained idea that when having sex, men are getting something, whereas women are giving up something. Right. And that w- even if you don't explicitly understand that or processing that, that that is something that is deep within our belief about sex in right. our society. So I do think writing about this stuff is really important. And I don't think many people are writing. There's not many men writing to men about having sex in this way that is sensitive that it's about learning that it's about like introspection you know it's more like how to get a girl right like that's Mm. that's what men get basically not what to do with her once you got her i know who else is doing is there somebody that you feel like is a man sex educator sexual commentator that you like to be honest i'm not really that tuned into that world i think there are a lot of men's coaches you know that that seems to be a big industry because as you mentioned i think a lot of young men are looking for guidance and i think that's part of the appeal of joe rogan and to some extent this podcast and Mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of like older men talking to younger men um who probably don't have a father figure that can talk to them about this stuff um Sometimes maybe yeah. in movies, like, I do think that in indirectly men can talk about sex and relationships in a way that they can't directly so that you could write a, you know, men can write a movie that explores male sexual vulnerability or mm. whatever, even though I can't think of one, but that that seems more like acceptable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If you're putting the like idea. American beauty. Yeah. That's an interesting exploration of. Yeah, and, and in TV a lot now, like yeah. you're seeing more um, people write about male bisexuality and yeah. things like that. Um, but yeah, something we were talking about, bef- you, you know, you're talking about transcending shame, right? As being a major part of what you are trying to do. And same for me, right? Especially with the Vice show. It's so much about people, you know, representing people, letting people talk who have really transcended shame, who are proud. Um, who are self-accepting and I think that 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 idea is contagious right like Mm. being and the same with with the porn star you were talking about before it's like why why is she able to do that in a sustainable positive way because she has self-acceptance and she is just unshaming and and to have representations of that it's almost like you can't be what you can't see right so to see someone just own something like that is so powerful and i think that um in that john ronson book like so you've been publicly shamed that's Mm. sort of where he gets to at the end of the book spoiler which is like the people who transcend this like these this public shaming are people who are just like who gives a fuck yeah you know what i mean yeah that that is what um that's what's powerful it's almost like 
that's like a Western version of enlightenment. When you you reach the stage <laughs> yeah. of I don't give a fuck, <laughs> right? Fuck you, fuck everybody, <laughs> fuck y'all. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, like people who have fuck you money often, like they're the last ones to say fuck you. You know, if you're rich, like you don't need to give a shit, man. Like who cares? They're gonna fire you. Fuck it. Yeah. I mean, I've been I I've never had fuck you money, but I've been saying fuck you my whole life into that. Like I haven't had a job since the '90s. I just can't do it. And how do you make money? Is that like a weird question? No, I've made money different ways. Like I said before, I was doing massage therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew weed for years. Uh, I did translations. I taught English. I, you know, I've had lots. I gutted salmon in Alaska. I worked on a fishing boat. I mean, I've done lots of weird shit over the years. But the main thing is I've kept my expenses really really low mm-hmm. so you know i never really needed to to make a lot of money i don't have kids i don't you know and so i totally. until sex of dawn came out like i hadn't paid taxes in a dozen years i was totally off the radar just because wow. i i wasn't making enough money you know and i was living all over the world um so yeah then suddenly it's like i got accountants and lawyers and you know this hassle you get paid to do public speaking and you get paid from your book and stuff like oh, that. Oh, now, yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. That stuff is confusing. I think that that is something that's interesting that people, especially in America, are not transparent about. I always wonder, I'm like, how do people make money? Especially, like, yeah. writers in New York. Like, like yeah. we know it's not from your books and, like, your, like, weird blog posts. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? Like, how you afford your rent. I feel, I mean, money is one of those things. It's like sex I've, and drugs. I feel have always felt militantly transparent mm-hmm. like i will tell you exactly how much money i make and yeah. how much money i have and how much debt i have like i feel like to not be transparent about it is to buy into a shaming you know mechanism that i i despise because it doesn't matter mm-hmm. you know um and so i've i've always felt like you know, I'd be at a party and someone would say, well, you know, LSD will fuck up your chromosomes. And I'm like, you're wrong. Here's the <laughs> thing. You know, blah, blah, blah. and I've taken LSD so much and I don't, and I'll, I don't care if it if it's awkward and it makes the party weird, then you shouldn't have invited me. Like, I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to like let the lie slide. You know, it'd be like someone, you know, insulting black people or something. I'm not going to just sit here and nod my head, you know. And so I feel that way about money and and sex. But the thing about sex, and I, I feel like I've I've probably revealed more about my own sexuality in this episode than ever. Oh wow! And this is like episode three hundred and fifty something. I feel like somehow like honored by that. You just bring it out in me. <laughs> I don't know what it is about you. Uh, but you know the thing about the sexuality is like I, and and I confront this with the book is like I'm. On one hand, I'm like radically transparent about my own experience, but the fact that it involves other people, like I want to be protective and respectful and not drag other people into my trip of wanting to be open about it. And so that's difficult because some of the people would be easily identifiable. You know, you just look at my yearbook or, you know, whatever. Um, really is there not ways to obscure because i think like but for my book that we did that too in terms of 
you know, I sat with a lawyer where it's like, we need to hide these people's identities and whether that mm. means changing more than just names, but changing professions, like, um, you know, obscuring or just not noting the time in which it happened. Mm. Like, really, you think you would, it would be a problem? In some cases. You know, ask Like, them. you know, the thing I, I did with um, Kim Kardashian, like, she would really be recognizable, <laughs> I think. I wouldn't be surprised about that. Actually, she's like a freak, right? I'm sure. I don't know. I, you know, there was that sex tape that was out. Yeah, that's everybody true. saw her giving head. I know. That's why she's famous. It's performative. So funny. Though. She was being pretty. Performative. She was pretty performative. <laughs> yeah, she didn't have performance anxiety. Yeah, but I think transparency is important. But also, like, I'm the same. I mean, I learned from experience that when I first started writing my blog, I was 21 years old, and I started writing about sexuality and the people I lived with and the people I was fucking and like. Oh, I like offended people yeah. because I didn't realize like, oh, you don't want all the details of your like intimate life <laughs> just sort of like <laughs> vomited up. out onto a blog spot. And you you grew up, if I remember, you grew up like in a pretty conservative family too. So there was a family s- issue, right? Totally. I grew up in a conservative Catholic family. Um, my parents have actually liberalized a lot over the years. So they're not, I mean, they're still religious to an extent, but they are in no way what they were like when they were when i was younger like when i was young my mom would talk out loud to jesus like constantly it was like he was her imaginary friend it would just be like jesus like you know we're on our way to school and carly has a big soccer game today and like we hope that you're with her then or like you know just like what jesus what should we have for dinner like it was just like <laughs> like never ending like and jesus is like give me a fucking break lady i know that's why i said i'd be like mom i think he's busy like don't talk to him about like dancing with the stars you know what i mean but yeah that was like that was uh, hard that's hilarious and then when i started writing about sex like I was living in, I moved to London when I was 18 to go to college and then sort of Mm. didn't leave for six, seven years. So in the initial steps of my, you know, doing that, um, there was, I felt a distance from them and they were sort of angry that I like moved away and wasn't going to college and was blogging and sort of doing drugs professionally. And so it really caused a dramatic, uh, yeah, ripple in our relationship i didn't talk to them very often we fought we were not close for years i think it was about primarily for them um both a fear that writing about sexuality explicitly on the internet would prevent me from having a job in the future because they had a lot of financial stress you know um as children and as adults and i think that my abilities to just be financially stable was a fear that that they had Mm. for me yeah um and then also it was a lot about shame of how other people would view me and our family yeah it was you know what i mean more than just like how they thought about the sexual acts themselves do you know who asa kira is yeah the porn star yeah we're not really friends but we like dm on twitter sometimes i'll put you in touch if you want to meet her (laughs) she's she's a friend she was on the podcast and she said something along those lines that she um yeah, you know, she's Japanese American, right? And her parents were born in Japan and raised in Japan. And when she told her parents, like, I'm doing porn, their only request was, please don't do it in Japanese. Oh, interesting. You do it in English, nobody cares. Why? Because like their friends wouldn't find it? Which I mean, she became one of like the most famous porn star in the world, so they I, probably found yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's 
Well, you know, we'd have to talk to them, but I imagine it's that they have a bifurcation in their minds. There's Japanese Asa and there's whatever. She's out in the world doing things in English. But like it would have brought it home in a way, you know? Yeah. And I think like the darker, something dark, I think, is that when, I don't know if you felt this from friends or or family but when you're doing something that's like hypersexual in it that there is sometimes shame associated with it but that if you are able to become successful doing it if you're able to monetize it that 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 it's not as embarrassing like i actually feel Mm -hmm. like once my parents understood that this was my job and that, that I had some respect or that I was associated with like Vogue, like they're mm. like just mid, you know, middle, not middle American, but they're just normal people. And my mom's like, Oh, I've heard of Vogue. That must mean it's not that bad. Do you know what I mean? It's like a mainstream acceptance helped them to get over it. And that right. something about that kind of like is icky kind of, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's yeah. like, if there's, it's not valid unless right. you're being paid for it or recognized right. for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, prostitution is dirty unless you're fucking the senator and then it's like oh i know she's coming up in the world seriously i have a ton of friends who are escorts in new york and like truly they make so much fucking money it's insane i like how you said fucking money (laughs) yeah that's so true (laughs) and so much money fucking (laughs) yeah yeah i had an escort uh reached out and wanted to sponsor my podcast what yeah (laughs) did you say yeah I said, you know, we we talked and actually we've corresponded quite a bit. I've never met her in person, but, um, you know, every once in a while she'll write to me like, hey, I'm going to be in New York next week if you're around, you know, let's get a beer. And we never, we've never been in the same place. But uh, the problem was, first of all, I don't have ads. Mm-hmm. And secondly, even though if I were going to have an ad, that'd be a pretty good one. And secondly, like my audience, I don't think my audience are the kind of people who are and I don't mean this judgmentally, I just mean financially, I don't think I have a lot of wealthy, older male listeners. Why? Well, because I think the bulk of my, of people who listen to this are probably in their 20s and 30s. And they're, and they're, you know, they're not paying a thousand bucks to spend the night with an escort. Yeah. It's just, it wouldn't have been, like, that's not her clientele. I'm not a good connection to those, those people. And also, it's illegal in some states, you know, in many states. So it's like all states, right? Except well, like Nevada, weird areas of Nevada, but yeah. it's like an area of Nevada or something. Yeah, I don't know. So then there's like, oh, I don't know. I have to talk to a lawyer about whether, like, can I advertise that? You know, because like, you know, Craigslist is getting hassled. Actually, the website you mentioned earlier, seeking arrangements, they're running into problems now, and you know, it's the legality is an issue. I don't need hassles. Yeah. yeah, it's totally. It's funny because I was talking to one of this, these girls who who escorts recently, and she was saying that um, that she's realized that as how much you charge, it's like okay, so you know how we're sort of conditioned to think of something as more expensive, it's better. So like this restaurant's cost more, it's better. Sometimes you're buying something on Amazon, and like the iron is like five dollars more. So you're like, maybe I should get that one because mm, it's better. Right. They're like. It's the same in the sex industry where if you're just like, I'm just going to charge $500 more an hour than someone else that, that these men have this idea like, oh, I've got to get that one because it's better. It's not actually, you know, mm. sort of it's devoid of like the, the performance, yeah, the, right. the service. 
which is such an interesting thing. Like yeah. it's kind of like consumption, like super rich guys where it's like, I have to have the best watch and I have to have the best escort and I have to have the best house or whatever. I deserve it. Yeah. It's yeah. a funny impulse. Well, you know, Casilda and I were talking about this in terms of psychiatry and therapy because she wanted to, she was looking at like, she was saying like, look, I want to work with young people. I'd rather help someone avoid a problem than try to fix it 30 years later, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I feel I resonate with them. I, like, I get it. You know, I, I feel like we would, the energy would be better. I'd be able to do more to help people. But they don't have any money. And I was like, well, then just don't charge. She said, no, you have to charge. If you don't charge, they don't take it seriously. There, there has to be a sacrifice. Um, or therapy won't work. Because exactly what you're saying, that instinct is like, oh, it doesn't cost anything. Well, this must be bullshit then. You know, it doesn't matter. You're co-author of a best-selling book and you've, you're licensed in three countries and have 30 years of experience. It doesn't matter. It's got a charge. So we actually came up with a pretty cool workaround, which was, um, okay, so you're a, you know, a barista at Starbucks and you're making 12 bucks an hour. So your therapy session costs... $75, which is a significant amount of money, and two hours of service at the, you know, animal shelter or hospice or, you know, at a place where that she would choose, that Casilda would choose based on what your issue is. So if you're trying to work through something that boils down to, you know, fear of death, let's say, you know, then work at the hospice or you know whatever like you're so your payment is you go out and do something but what you're doing is also contributing to the therapeutic process whoa that is an epically first of all amazing idea and so resourceful but also so generous because she's still not being paid right yeah but money. that's yeah but she doesn't give a shit like she's not in it for the money. She's in fact, she's totally wow. checked out of psychiatry at this point. She doesn't, she's not given pills. She doesn't give a shit about being licensed. She's in fact, right now she's in Africa in Mozambique doing uh, volunteer medical work in the countryside uh, where she grew up. Like she wants, she loves, she always talks about like her best times as a doctor were working in these villages in Africa and people would pay whatever they could, a chicken, um, they'd bring her some, you know, herbs that they'd gathered, some wild flowers and some, you know, nuts and berries and, you know, whatever they had, they would, they would bring it to her. And that was so much, so valuable and so beautiful. And she set up and she's done, I, I want her to write a memoir. That's one of the reasons she's there is to sort of research, um, to return and, you know, sort of see how things have changed and all that. Um, but like she did this amazing shit where she had, she had a little clinic and um, people were in the clinic, mostly mental health, um, people who had schizophrenia or whatever. And as part of their therapy, she set up a garden where they grew medicinal herbs that she would then use to treat other people. Because she had, it was, it's the poorest country, second poorest country in the world, Mozambique, after wow. Haiti. So there's no like medical technology. She did crazy shit. I mean, she's run like uh, someone who needed blood. She would like stuck one end in her own arm and the other end in them. What? And, this and, person sounds incredible. Oh, she's total badass. Yeah. You've never met her. 
No. No, that's right. Yeah. No, she's she's amazing. Um, that is so cool. I mean, yeah. the access to a therapy psychiatrist is such an incredible privilege. Like, I don't think that a lot of people have the ability, like anyone in their life to really have that type of interaction with. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I, I sometimes think about doing she and I've talked a lot about we actually did therapy together for a while in Spain like you were a therapist as well well I'm a I have a PhD in psychology right so but did you ever do like practice with patients no okay no and but it doesn't matter neither did she I mean as a psychiatrist I I don't know what it's like in the US uh, but I think it's the same you're a medical doctor so you go through med school you do all that and then you know, some people do their um, residency in cardiology or an obstetrician or whatever. You do it in psychiatry, and that's studying the brain, mm-hmm. neurotransmitters. It's it's mechanical, you know, physiological. There's no here's how you talk to someone. Here's how you elicit, uh, you know, change. Here's how you talk about someone's dreams or childhood or none of the psychodynamic Freudian. Like there's none of that. Mm-hmm. It's you're you're a physician and you understand the brain. Now go be a psychiatrist. Right, and she's mainly in order to understand you well enough to just prescribe you a medication. Yeah, right. right. Which has never been her thing. She's more of a shaman who went to med school. Right. She's like by nature. She's, you know, I I always describe her as like, she's like the lifeguard who doesn't throw you a life preserver. Right. She dives (laughs) in and drags you out at like her own serious risk. Yeah. It's, It's really heavy. But, um... What was I talking about? Like, uh, oh, she's done. Like, she's delivered hundreds of babies and amputated limbs and can't even remember how many people have died in her hands. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. Total badass. You were saying that you guys were about to do therapy together. Oh, that we did therapy together, right. Because the idea is, like, if you want couples therapy Mm -hmm. and you go to a woman therapist, the guy's feeling not understood. Do you think that's true? I think so. Because is what we said earlier, that men and women do tend to think differently. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a male therapist, then the woman's probably going to feel like, you know, like there's some bias here. So the ideal thing would be to go to a couple who are both, both therapists. And so we did that for a while. And we would like have the initial session with the couple and us sort of figure out if this is going to work, if we can help and whatever. And then we would have separate sessions. Mm-hmm. Me with the guy and her with the woman. And then when it was appropriate, sometimes we'd switch and I'd be with the woman. And she, you know, and it was actually really interesting. The problem is we were charging, so it was cost twice as much. Right. Um, and it was a while ago. And I'm not, I don't think I'm like very good as a therapist per se, a conventional therapist, because I don't, like if I, I my thing is I want to model transparency and clarity just because that's what I aspire to myself and in therapy there's there is some deceit in the sense that I might see exactly what's going on and what you need to figure out but I won't tell you I'll lead you toward it I'll suggest you 
look over there and and but I'll wait for you to figure it out because you figuring it out for yourself is really important and transformative whereas me just telling you look the issue is that your mother did blah blah blah, blah and you're like oh really oh okay and like it's like you don't value it in a way because I just gave it to you you need Weird. to find it for yourself and I'm really impatient with that process I just want to like tell people what I see Right. So my therapy wouldn't really be therapy. It would just be like a coaching. No bullshit feedback. That's so interesting. I don't even know if I fully realized that that's what therapists have been doing to me all along. It's like <laughs> I thought, I'm pay- bitch, I'm paying you to like <laughs> get tell to me the what's point. Wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, but it's been like so helpful for me to understand. Like I think that we don't understand why we feel things largely. Like all I'm right. just like, you know. uh personally like i'm super i can be super sensitive in romantic relationships to like criticism right Mm. and then sort of being able to track that back to specific points in my life where i feel like i um was you know that 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 it's largely linked to like my parents being super critical of my job you know and um my profession and then you know you, you learned in psychology right that you replicate relationships that are familiar so mm. throughout my like late teens and into my 20s i was like constantly getting in these relationships where that my partners were somehow disapproving of my writing or being so explicit about sexuality and i just thought mm. like this is a dynamic that i'm never going to be able to escape like every it's so hard for me to find a partner that's okay with me being so overtly sexual and like this is an issue and then eventually i just realized that i'm like just seeking those people out straight up and have since been able to correct that but like being able to have someone help you make that connection is like invaluable i think yeah i always think of of that kind of therapy as like graduate school about you (laughs) yeah it's like a seminar we're gonna study you this term you know and so I like if I do it and I think about doing it sometimes like what I would do is just like what you're paying me for isn't some therapeutic process. What you're paying me for is I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be totally honest with you. Mm-hmm. What, whatever you tell me, I will respond with total honesty. That's my commitment. And I, I think for some people that would be really valuable and actually very healing rapidly and for other people it it wouldn't be and so like that we'd have to decide if this is appropriate right i mean it would make some people like highly defensive but mm-hmm. um why do you think you're able to do that i think that that is is like did you grow up in a family where people just like real talked because i mean i grew up in a family where people it was like you know don't rock the boat like don't talk about politics like mm-hmm. don't like sort of if if something if you know something is gonna offend people, just keep that like keep it a secret. It's like learn to be secretive in order to maintain the air of. Or, but you've obviously rebelled against that, right? But I think it's it's still hard for me to like, you know, not white lie if someone's like, did you did did you like this thing I made? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. great. But I I'm yeah. getting, I've definitely gotten way better at that. But it's like it's been tr- a, tr- a true training process. But like, how do you just get? How do you not worry about that? Well, no, I, I don't want to misrepresent. Like, I do worry about it, and I do white lie, and I, you know, I, I'm not like if there's a situation where it's like, all right, I could like pretend I like that, even though I don't so much. But if I say I don't, it's going to really hurt that person and there's really no point to it 
then I'll pretend. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't want to hurt people unnecessarily. Right. But I'm talking about like in a situation where, you know, the 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 fundamental agreement that we have is what you're paying me to do is be non-judgmentally honest. Then I'll I'll do that. Like I know how to do that. And I think, you know, relating, you know, getting back to the sexuality, I think that's one of the things that I really like about sexuality. You were talking about it being a language. I feel like it's a language where it's hard to lie, Mm -hmm. you know, like both literally and figuratively. If it's if you're if you're not naked, you're kind of missing the point. Literally and and figuratively. Yeah. Like. Yeah, like if you don't want to be intimate, then let's not fuck. I know. Well, I think you can lie, though. I mean, um, again, going back to the sex work conversation, it is a lie in a lot of ways. I mean, and some people are better than others, and some people don't mind being on the receiving end of mm. of a of a performance, right? Like, yeah, you're right. In a way that I think can't like some people. The people report this all the time with like clients. They just they like just want you to come over and over come in quotes you know and then the faking that it's almost like this un like you fake it over and over and then it's like this undisclosed thing where it both of you are not pretending that it's real or i assume that they're pretending that it's real because it's like did you actually think that girl can come five times in an hour when like nothing is you're not really making an effort do you know what i mean yeah, see, I've I've never been able to do that. I spent a lot of time in Thailand when I was young, and I was horny to the point of insanity, <laughs> and I could not do it. I couldn't be with, you know. And there are all these beautiful. I love I love you know beautiful Asian women, young women laughing. Have you been to Thailand? Mm-mm. Well, so the whole thing about prostitution in thailand because of the buddhist culture it's not shamed it's not sexuality isn't this dirty horrible thing so a lot of young women it would be really interesting for you actually to spend time there to just look at how a culture where sex work isn't shamed at least not in the way it is in the west and so a lot of young women are like hey i want to like i'm gonna fuck these foreign dudes and and um yeah, there are strip clubs and things like where it's, you know, 50 bucks for a blowjob or whatever it is. Um, but most of it is this unofficial gray area. I remember I met this German dude who told me about, he explained the whole thing to me. We were in Kathmandu. He taught me how to juggle, by the way. Um, but uh, he, he explained like, yeah, he goes to Thailand and there's a woman there that he's known. He You know, every time he goes, he calls her up. And if she's busy, meaning with someone else. She'll hook him up with a friend who speaks English. And if he likes her and she likes him, then they'll travel in Thailand for a few weeks or whatever. And she'll translate and she'll get like much better deals in hotels Mm because they won't charge the foreigner price. They charge that. And she'll order at restaurants and they get better food and she knows where to go and she knows what to do and all that. And he pays for everything. But so what? He's saving as much money as he's paying. And then at some point on the trip, they'll visit the village where her family is. What? Then this is customary? This This is customary. Yeah, this is how it works, according to this guy. And and he'll meet her family 
and everyone will be happy and welcoming and sweet. And at some point he'll notice like that refrigerator is really old and he'll say, Hey, could we buy your mother a refrigerator? And it's, oh, thank you. That would be so nice. And they go and buy a refrigerator and that's it. And, and the, and your the assumption is that the parents are they find this as a useful service that their daughter is providing and not something that's tragic. Right. That's so interesting. I didn't right. know that. I mean, I knew there was a lot of prostitution in Thailand, obviously, but I didn't understand, um, you know, the cultural context. I always thought it was. I do think it's weird that in the West that it's so stigmatized, or the there, there's just like this implicit idea that monetizing your sexuality or selling sex is inherently bad or just like something that shouldn't be done which i don't understand because we sell everything else we sell like sperm we sell beauty we sell babies like we like rent out our uterus for someone else and (laughs) we use sex to sell everything yeah it's just so weird i was thinking the other day i was like is sex the only thing that when it's free it's legal but when it's when you but it's illegal to sell it i was like mm. there must be something else but is it the only thing i think it might be yeah that's weird right the only thing i can think of off the top of my head that's similar it's not the same but it's similar is poppies if you grow poppies in your garden really and you don't know that the seeds contain heroin it's legal if you know the seeds contain heroin, it's illegal. What? And how can they prove that you don't know? Like <laughs> It's crazy. So it's illegal, and yet there are all these grandmothers all across the country growing opium poppies. There's a book called Opium for the Masses, great title, uh-huh. uh, where, where he explains all this, that the American legal system is so fucked up that it's the knowledge of the drug in the plant that makes the cultivation illegal. That is bizarre. I guess yeah. that's true probably. I mean, like magic mushrooms grow mm. everywhere and you, I, can't, I assume, can't be arrested if they're... They just happen to be growing in your cow's shit. It's right. not your fault. But then if you take them, mm. is that illegal? Right. Or you like, you know, take the cow shit and put it in a planter and then, you know, cultivate them. I don't know. It's, you know, there's no sense in all this. But we we're talking earlier about phrases that are annoying. Mm-hmm. Another one is she sells herself. Right. What do you talk? Or she sells her body. She yeah. didn't sell her, but she like rented it out for 20 minutes, man. Yeah. At most. Shared it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That yeah. is totally one. Also, I heard one the other day about how it's so perverse that when people die, we're like, oh, he was worth $5 million. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Like someone is, like that. there's like Not a even value. when they die. You say it, you know, he's worth, you know, this and that. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. Not even when they end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's dark. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> See, this is fun. I, I think it's true. And the danger is that I would say more about my own sick, sick mind. Yeah, you got to save it for the book. I got to save it for the book. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to tell. It's going to be a tell-all. I'm excited about that. And this was so fun. I love talking to you. I'll come back whenever you want. Mm. If you want me to. Tomorrow. Yeah, sure. Tonight. Whenever. <laughs> Carly, slut ever. It's been two hours and I need to pee like what? a racehorse. That was two hours? Two hours. Let's cry. Yeah. And, and we, it's what? 
That's cray. Cray, cray, cray. That's yeah, cray, cray. I don't think I've heard that before. Uh, where do people find you? Um, Slutever.com is my website, and I wrote a column for Vogue called Breathless, and then my show is on Viceland. How do you get Vice Lady? Is that a cable thing? You have to pay for it's it? It's a cable it? thing. Um, so you have to have a cable package. It's also mm. like available on Apple TV. Oh, okay. um, but it is, yeah, that's pretty much it. I don't know anyone who has cable. I, I don't have cable, so have you ever seen, find it. <laughs> I don't either. Have you ever seen the show you and I did together? I've no, never seen that it. No, that was on Viceland as well. Did I'm, they air it? I think they did air it. I don't think it did that well, TBH. We were talking about um, uh, dating apps, right, and cheating. I remember thinking the hostess, the hostess, is that, like the yeah. woman, like she wasn't, it, it didn't feel, not, you know, not to be critical, but I felt like, yeah, like, yeah, I didn't. She didn't care. It, it didn't feel like she was right for that. Yeah. Especially the sub, I, the, the, the show was called The Business of Life. So it right. wasn't all about that episode was about sexuality. Right. And it just, it did seem like she. Like she her was uncomfortable. And the, her and the audience were just like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. Well, I remember making a big thing about like, dudes, do not send unsolicited dick pics ever. Yeah. Ever. Like that's that's the best advice I can give. Agreed. Yeah. No unsolicited dick pics. Yeah. Gentlemen. And if you do, and if someone does ask for one, like consider lighting, please. <laughs> <laughs> consider lighting what, what's the best side lighting uh coming from below what, how do you deal with it? Know, or is like, it just the golden you went golden lighting yeah and maybe like not a weird shadow and like romantic yeah yeah, yeah. Romantic. candle candlelight yeah candlelight <laughs> <laughs> dick pics by candlelight there must be in the iphone there must be like a a filter you can yeah, apply exactly. dick pic filter yeah all right Carly, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm going to go pee. Bye. Bye. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Well, I have the box marked thinking out of my ass instead of talking out of my ass. <laughs> then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. Anything else you want to say, Mom? They make wonderful Christmas presents. <laughs> there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Won't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground. 